You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at God's Word. The scripture reading for this morning's sermon is from Mark 9, verses 38 through 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear, we have come to a text that includes a warning serious and dire warning. So Holy Spirit, would you use this text, would you use the weightiness of it to accomplish your purposes? Would it turn true believers contemplating shipwrecking their life through sin, would it turn them back to Christ? And would it turn some who do not know Christ to repentance and faith? So Holy Spirit, would you work through the preaching of your word this morning? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I read this interesting observation from a well-known pastor some time ago, he observed 
The other day, I saw some children at play on a large vacant lot where someone had dumped a mound of dirt. They were playing the greatest of kid games, King of the Mountain. The rules are as simple as they are brutal. Fight your way to the top and shove off anyone who threatens to take your spot. Versions of King of the Mountain are played in every dormitory, classroom, boardroom, and living room. And since mountaintop real estate is limited, people tend to get shoved around. Mark it down. If you want to be king, someone else is going to suffer. Your arrogance might prompt a broken marriage, an estranged friendship, or a divided office. And then he said this. Pride comes at a high price. Pride comes at a high price. If you were to read the Bible cover to cover, this would be one of your chief observations, beginning in the Garden of Eden. Pride comes at a high price. Unfortunately, this is not a problem that goes away over time, as if followers of Jesus finally learned their lesson and realized that pride comes at a high price. No, generation after generation, everyone struggles with the sin of pride. There are no exceptions, not even the disciples who walked closely with Jesus. We've seen this throughout Mark's gospel, but especially in the last few weeks. Pride was at play when they failed to heal the young man with an unclean spirit. Pride is beneath their various misunderstandings of Jesus. It is pride that keeps them from seeing Jesus as the promised Messiah who must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. It is pride that keeps them from humbling themselves and sacrificially serving the least and the last in the name of Jesus. Today, we will see pride displayed yet again as the disciples misunderstand kingdom growth and they misunderstand eternal judgment. So last week I said there were four misunderstandings. We covered two last week, two this week. This week they misunderstand kingdom growth and eternal judgment. Now in the hustle and bustle of everyday life, It is true that pride comes at a high price. But friends, when we're talking about important spiritual matters, like the person and work of Jesus Christ, when it comes to his identity and his teaching, when when our pride hinders us from seeing clearly the nature of his kingdom and his final judgment, in these matters, the price for pride is utterly devastating. It's quite literally a matter of life and death, of eternal joy or eternal judgment. 
So once again, here is my plea. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Listen to the words of Jesus and believe. Again, last week we saw that the disciples were misunderstanding Christ's passion and they were misunderstanding true greatness. Well, this morning we find them still in school. There is more to learn. So let's pick up with their third misunderstanding. They were misunderstanding kingdom growth. Now, that may not be the best way to describe this point, but it's all I could come up with. But I think you'll understand why I'm using that terminology. Jesus has just explained again the necessity of his passion. Look back at verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. After this, Jesus confronts the arrogance of the disciples by clarifying true greatness in verse 35. Look at the text with me. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. Now, on the heels of these two very important clarifications from Jesus to the disciples, what does Mark record in verse 38? John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It's pretty easy to piece together what's happening here. It's not that complicated. John and his compadres have seen something they feel the need to tell Jesus about. They're they're tattletales. They, They witness someone casting out a demon in the name of Jesus. Now, remember the story we encountered in verses 14 through 29 the story of a demon-possessed boy and his desperate father. Remember what happened to the disciples in that story? Look at verse 18. The father describes the condition of his son, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And then the father tells Jesus, so I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Don't miss this. In verse 38, John is telling Jesus about someone who they saw do something that they just failed to do. Friends, this this isn't a simple observation the disciples are sharing with Jesus. John is speaking, I think, on behalf of the other disciples, and he's, he's not thrilled about what they just witnessed. And we know this because what did the disciples do when they saw the miracle being performed? The text says they tried to stop him. And why did they try to stop him? Because he was not following us. Do you see what's happening here? This is a response 
of pride. The disciples aren't genuinely concerned about the reputation of Jesus. And they're obviously not thinking with compassion about the one who just got healed. They're offended that someone is infringing on their territory. Doing awesome stuff in the name of Jesus is their job. Who's this guy? You see, in their pride, the disciples were blind to the fact that the kingdom of God might actually be bigger than them. Notice Jesus' response in verse 39. Now, I love the, the humanity of these conversations. But Jesus said, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is Jesus' way of confronting the pride of the disciples and making it crystal clear to them that his kingdom is a lot bigger than they realize. One commentator puts it this way, the disciples have narrow, prideful hearts that seem bent on cornering the market on ministry. But Jesus' heart is more expansive. It is as if Jesus is saying, would that all the Lord's people were exorcists who would cast out demons in my name. So I, I want you to see three clarifications Jesus makes in his response to the disciples' prideful display. First, Jesus points to the connection between faith and works. If this guy just did a mighty work in Jesus' name, then what's going to follow is some form of this. He's also going to proclaim what is true about Jesus. Why? Because the sure sign of authentic faith is some manifestation of right belief and right behavior. This one who has demonstrated compassion in the name of Jesus will also declare allegiance to the person of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples that they aren't his only true followers. This guy they tried to stop is the real deal. Second, notice again what Jesus says in verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Exactly what error is Jesus confronting here? Well, it's all bound up in that word, us. For the disciples, again, the kingdom of God was small. They knew the boundaries. And they knew that the miracle-working mystery man was not one of what? Us. Well, Jesus disagrees. Jesus says the guy is. 
one of us. You see, friends, the disciples, the very ones that were just arguing about who was greatest, they were so preoccupied with their own place in the kingdom that something very important never occurred to them. God might be gloriously working through other people. Listen to what the 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle had to say about this text. Ryle said, Here is a golden rule indeed, and one that human nature sorely needs and has too often forgotten. Members of all branches of Christ's church are apt to think that no good can be done in the world unless it is done by their own party and denomination. Ryle continues, they are so narrow-minded that they cannot conceive the possibility of working on any other pattern but that which they follow. Anybody here think this still might be a problem for followers of Christ? Anybody here ever witness tribalism in the body of Christ? That idea that God is only really pleased with my tribe, those who believe exactly what I believe and do exactly what I do. As Ryle said, we are apt to think that no good can be done in the world unless it is done by my own party or denomination. I remember being at a pastor's fellowship several years ago and the man who was speaking asked the couple hundred pastors in attendance this question. Brothers, how would you feel if the revival that you're praying for came to the church down the road instead of your church? Would you be disappointed? Would you be disappointed or would you be excited to see the success and spread of the gospel no matter where it's happening? If you've been at Redeemer very long, you know that my intent in saying these things is not to downplay in any way the importance of sound doctrine, but it is to open your eyes to the expansive work of a sovereign God. So brothers and sisters, may God do whatever it takes to destroy any shred of tribalistic arrogance that may be springing up in our hearts or in this church. A third and final clarification is found in verse 41. Let me read it again. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I want you to hear this very carefully. The evidence of a true follower of Christ is not found 
in the magnitude of the work done in his name. The evidence of a true follower of Christ is not found in the magnitude of the work done in his name. The disciples, blinded by pride and obsessed with who was the greatest, they had no category for simple devotion to Christ. Some who truly believed in Jesus would give evidence of their allegiance to Jesus by casting out a demon. But some would give, would give evidence of their allegiance by giving a thirsty disciple a cup of cold water. In both cases, Jesus Christ would be glorified. And he would be pleased with the one who acts in faith. You see, in contrast to the disciples, Jesus, Jesus isn't more or less pleased based on the magnitude of the work you do in his name. No, he is delighted in both big and small acts of genuine worship and service when they spring forth from a heart that longs for his name to be glorified. So, please be encouraged, nursery workers and greeters and ushers and kitchen workers and communion servers and everyone else who serves in less visible ways than worship teams and pastors. Again, Jesus is delighted in both big and small acts of genuine worship and service when they spring forth from a heart that longs for his name to be glorified. So here's the big lesson in response to the disciples' misunderstanding of kingdom growth. In humility, in humility, marvel at the sovereign work of God wherever you see it, carried out, carried out by whomever God has chosen, all the while being humbled to play your part, however small that might be. In humility, marvel at the sovereign work of God wherever you see it, carried out by whomever God has chosen, all the while being humbled to play your part, however small that might be. This brings us to the disciples' fourth and final misunderstanding, at least in this part of Mark's gospel. They were misunderstanding eternal judgment. They were misunderstanding eternal judgment. We find this, is, this in verses 42 through 50. So let me switch it up and give you the lesson. Let me give you the lesson of these verses before I explain them. Here's the lesson. Eternal judgment in hell. Eternal judgment in hell isn't just for godless idolaters, but it's also for arrogant and spiritually blind followers of Jesus. 
Eternal judgment in hell isn't just for godless idolaters, but it's also for arrogant and spiritually blind followers of Jesus. Now, stick with me and let me explain what I mean. Someone can claim to be a follower of Jesus. Someone can claim to be a follower of Jesus and reveal through their actions a heart of profound pride that does not truly know and worship Jesus. Someone can claim to be a follower of Jesus and reveal through their actions a heart of profound pride that does not truly know and worship Jesus. This person, this person in their unrepentant sin is like every person who refuses to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. All those who do not believe the gospel will spend an eternity in a place of God's everlasting judgment, a place called hell. And it does not matter if you were a godless idolater without Jesus or a follower of Jesus without Jesus. Let me pause and give you three characteristics of hell so that you know what I'm talking about as we work our way through verses 42 through 50. One, hell is a place of real torment. Hell is a place of real torment. It has always been popular to attempt to dismiss hell as a real place of real torment, but friends, you should know that no one spoke more about hell than Jesus did. And he said things like this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Clearly, for Jesus, hell is a real physical place of real physical torment. Number two, hell is a place of unceasing torment. In verses 43 and 48 of our text this morning, hell is described as a place of unquenchable fire. And in verse 48, it's a place where the worm does not die. One theologian explains The fire never dies down, and what is in the fire never dies from the fire. The people in hell don't die out, and the fires of hell don't die down. It is the worst possible place. Number three, hell is a place of unparalleled torment. In verses 42 through 47, as we will see, the horrors of hell are said to be immeasurably greater than the very worst of earthly suffering. So with this in mind, here's our final lesson again. Eternal judgment in hell isn't just for godless idolaters, but it's also for arrogant and spiritually blind followers of Jesus. This jarring lesson is illustrated 
in verses 42 through 47. Look at the text with me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Eternal judgment is for those who, in their spiritual pride, cause a true believer to stumble. What we have translated as little ones in verse 42 does not refer to children. That can be confusing because of what comes before. It does not refer to children, but refers to authentic followers of Jesus, true believers. If someone who claims to be a Christian becomes so puffed up and arrogant in his or her spirituality that that he would do something that would compromise the faith of another, either some kind of temptation that leads to sin or false teaching that leads to a distorted faith, this one, this one is in danger of eternal judgment. Notice the second half of the verse. Notice just how serious, how serious this kind of arrogant behavior is. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. A millstone was a massive stone that only a large animal could move. If a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, it would mean certain death, and it would be a horrifying death. But here's the point. That would be better. That would be better than what will happen to you in eternity if you die in your spiritual arrogance. Death by helplessly being plunged into a watery tomb would be better than the eternal punishment you will face if you leave behind you a field full of the carnage of other people's faith. If you have spent your life enticing true followers of Jesus to stumble in their faith and sin against your Savior, this would be better than what eternity will be. Friends, this is meant to shock us, but it is true. Look now at verses 43 through 47, and you'll see the pattern continue with the repetition of the word better. Again, this is meant to reveal just how utterly horrific the eternal judgment of a holy God really is. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where Their worm does not die and the fire is not 
quenched. If the chief concern of verse 42 is causing another to stumble and to sin, then the primary issue being addressed in verses 43 through 47 is what might cause you to stumble and to sin. There are three examples given, all very similar. They make the same overarching point. Jesus' mentioning of hands, feet, and eyes is meant to encompass all areas of life. One commentator notes, the hand likely signifies whatever is done, the foot wherever one goes, and the eye whatever one sees. In other words, Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying that your hands, feet, and eyes can literally make you sin. However, when temptation comes, when your heart longs for the momentary satisfaction of sin, these hands, feet, eyes, these are the physical means by which you access the sin that is enticing you. Now, friends, here's the sobering, even startling warning that Jesus is giving us. Eternal judgment in hell is so bad that if you could avoid it, if you could avoid it by even something as awful and painful as cutting off your hand and foot and tearing out your eye, you should do it. Friends, the eternal judgment of a holy God is not something to be trifled with. If your pattern of life your pattern of life is one of unrepentant sin where you return day after day to that which you know is sinful and offensive to God if there is no brokenness no desire to repent if there is a willful ignoring of God's word and his warnings then this text ought to terrify you Jesus is pleading with his own disciples. Don't let your pride send you to hell. Now, what are we to make of verses 49 and 50? For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Verse 49 requires a little bit of Old Testament context. In Exodus 30, we read that sacrificial offerings for the people of God not only involve fire, but also salt. The salt acting as a purifying agent. Under the new covenant, believers are referred to as living sacrifices. 
living sacrifices that should be marked by moral purity. In fact, Jesus refers to his people as the salt of the earth, meaning that believers act as a preserving agent, pushing back against the moral decay in the world by pursuing holy and pure lives. One commentator explains the essence of these two verses when he writes, someone who has not been salted with fire is not offering his or her life to God and is not acting in a morally pure way. He or she will cause others to stumble and sin as part of their prideful exclusion of others. So it's kind of wrapping all of this together. I want you to see how it fits together. It, and it brings us back to the final lesson yet again. Eternal judgment in hell isn't just for godless idolaters but it's also for arrogant and spiritually blind followers of Jesus. Listen, there is a kind of spiritual pride that masquerades as love for Jesus. There is a kind of spiritual pride that masquerades as love for Jesus. But friends, look closely at its fruit. We've seen it all throughout Mark chapter 9. What is the fruit of spiritual pride that masquerades as love for Jesus? Here's the fruit. It ignores prayer. It fails to accept Jesus as he really is. It longs for position and prestige. It rejects humble service to the least and the last. It embraces tribalism and ignores God's broader kingdom work. It entices others to stumble and to sin. And finally, it leads to eternal judgment in the fires of hell. My plea to all of you this morning is to hear this warning from Jesus. Pride comes at a high price. I mentioned it earlier, but let me say it again. Think about the immediate audience. It's the disciples. And here's what we know. At least one of them didn't listen to this warning. Yeah. 
if it could happen to Judas, it could happen to someone here. But there is an alternative. If we were to go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, shortly after we were introduced to Jesus, this is what we read. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. For all those who repent and believe the gospel, rather than experiencing the wrath of God through an eternity in the fires of hell, you can have eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you turn to him in faith, he will forgive your sin and make you new. You can be clothed in the perfect righteousness of the one who absorbed God's wrath so that you will never experience one single drop of it. Instead of being cast away from God's presence into utter darkness through Jesus, you can experience unending joy in the presence of the one who conquered sin and death. This is what it means to repent to humble yourself and believe the gospel. Don't, don't let your pride keep you from Jesus. Jesus.